Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're joining us here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online, whether you're up in uh, high school in Port Perry or you're on a dock somewhere. We're so glad that you're joining us. I don't know if you've had the blessing or the privilege of traveling, but one thing I think we all who have got the privilege of traveling know is when you go to another culture and you run into someone from your own culture, there is an immediate bond you have with them that you don't think about here. Every time you as a Canadian, if you are one, are traveling and you suddenly find someone when you're in the middle of India or maybe Calcutta or wherever, suddenly you begin talking about things you don't really care about at home. So every time I run into Canadians when I'm traveling, we end up talking about Tim Hortons, though I drink at Starbucks all the time. We end up talking about things that are Canadian-esque because it is something that we share in common. It's something that binds us together. And what's so amazing about that is when we live here, much of that stuff does not unite us. It's just sort of in the ether and we don't think about it. But it becomes absolutely shockingly in our face when we're in another culture and we're actually feeling isolated or alone or different. And when you find someone who you have unity with because you are Canadian, there's this bonding that takes place. It's the same thing also, you know this, when you travel in other families, when you're just hanging out with other communities or other family groups, you realize how distinctly the same and different your family is from another family. And what I want to bring up this morning is this, Paul is about to address an issue about unity and bonding, and much of the time when we're sitting with each other all the time, we miss what really brings us together, and sometimes we need to go somewhere else to see what we have in common, and to see what our unity is built around so we can come back and participate in unity. So welcome to week four in our series, How to Pray by Using the Bible. Today we are going to discover and read together a barely read prayer moment between Jesus and Paul, and then Paul in a local church that was founded in the ancient famous city of Rome. We're going to be in the book of Romans, by the way. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 15. We'll get there in a minute. Now, the book of Romans was written at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, somewhere around 57 AD, probably in the city of Corinth. And Paul, by the way, did not birth or start the church in Rome. It actually starts all the way back in the book of Acts, chapter 2, what we studied this year as a church. When Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people on the moment became followers of Jesus as Messiah, a whole group of them were from Rome. They are the ones who actually became Christians in Jerusalem, went back to Rome, and actually founded that amazing church. Now, decades later, we get the book of Romans, and there are a large amount of not only Jews who have become followers of Jesus as Messiah, there are now tons of non-Jews who have become followers of Jesus as the Son of God, and they are trying to do church together. Now, if you read the book of Romans, it's like a mosaic or kaleidoscope dealing with all sorts of different issues and different audiences, but Paul's whole point is this. It's not just to express in detail what the Christian faith is. It is also to remind those Christians that what binds them together is Jesus, and it is stronger than any of the differences that they actually have in that community. Now, before we get to three mini prayers that Paul, or actually four, prays at the end of this book, we need to start at the beginning. 
to understand the power of Paul's prayer, to understand the power and the heart and the concern and the passion and the urgency of Paul's prayers in Romans 15, we actually have to understand the book of Romans. Now, Romans is probably the most theologically in-depth book in the whole Bible and one of the most complex. And I'm not going to sit here and preach for the next nine hours, but we're going to try to do Romans in under two minutes. Are you all ready? Buckle in, and here we go. You're like, for real? Yes, hashtag for real. Here we go. And if you are a seeker here this morning or a skeptic, you are about to understand what the Christian faith is in under two minutes. So here we go. Romans 1.16 reads like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for Jews, then Gentiles. That means non-Jews. So there is a good news. It is the power of God that brings salvation. It's for everyone. Romans 3.9, we're all in the same boat. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews are all alike under sin. As it is written in the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands and no one who seeks God. So there is good news from heaven and we're all in a really bad place because we've all sinned and we're all lost. It doesn't matter if you're deeply religious like a Jewish person or a complete pagan Greek. In the end, we're all in the same boat under the wrath of God. Romans 3.21, now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The whole Old Testament is preparing for something better. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were all still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you've embraced that, later he writes in Romans 8.9 to Christians, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, that's the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. In other words, now you are actually in God's good books because of Jesus's work and you are now in relationship. You don't have to say yes to sin anymore. Romans 9 16, it does not there defend, depend on a person's desire or effort. This is all done by God's mercy. Romans 10 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and you're justified made right, and it is with your mouth you confess and you are saved. Romans 12.1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of all of that, God's mercy, now offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now you've met God, now give your life as worship back to him. And finally, Romans 15.7, you accept one another, then just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. That is the Christian faith in under two minutes. This is what they used to call the Romans Road. Now, everything I just read is true of you if you're a Christian. It's true for Jews. It's true for non-Jews that have trusted in Christ. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Now, Paul, as he's writing this, has heard that there is ever-growing tension between the two groups that now form this new Jesus community. So Paul, near the end of his book, begins, begins to deal with the issue of church unity. And as we come to chapter 15, we're halfway through the conversation. 
Now, let me start where we must when we deal with issues of unity. Unity, according to a Christian worldview, is never about uniformity. Though uniformity is a way to create unity, that has never been God's heart or intention. He has brought us all together, and he's bound us together through another. That's Jesus. Yet we all know how easy it is for us to mess up in the area of unity, which not only brings pain to the church, but actually drives people away from the church, which actually will make sure that they are lost for eternity. Now, the disunity in Rome had to do with some very specific issues. It had to do with meat. This isn't like a vegan versus, that's not what we're talking about. It has to do with meat was sacrificed to pagan deities and demons. In that culture, when an animal would be slaughtered, a small portion of meat would be given to an idol, and then the rest would be sold in the market. So can a Christian actually eat the meat that's been given to a demon or not? Also, the animals were not slaughtered according to Jewish Old Testament law, what Muslims would call halal in their own culture. And so Christian Jews were saying it is impossible to eat this meat because it's given to demons and it is not slaughtered properly. And then the second debate was, should all Christians have to celebrate all the Jewish high days, Sabbath, uh, Pentecost, etc.? So Paul comes along in the middle of this massive debate that's dividing the church, and this is what he writes in Romans 14, 6. He who regards one day as special does it to the Lord. He who eats meat, they eat it to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who abstains does it also to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's what one person simply wrote. Paul's indisputable point here is this. People with opposing viewpoints on non-essential issues can be actually both right with God at the same time. In the historic context, if Christians from the Jewish background want to keep the Sabbath and abstain from meat and wine, that's fine. If Christians who aren't from a Jewish background neglect the Sabbath and eat meat and drink wine, that's also fine too. Both positions are acceptable and they're good Christian positions and each believer who holds the position cannot, everyone ready, condemn the other Christian. Now, nothing, by the way, is new under the sun. Let's have a good, honest moment this morning about the diversity just sitting in this church. This church is made up of women and men, and we all know that we're all so similar, not even close. And then there's generational issues. Some of you are builders, others of you are baby boomers. There's Gen X, there's millennial, there's some new thing that's formed supposedly between those two that I'm part of, and then there's generation Z or Z. And then some of you are blue collar, and others of you are white collar, and then we all have different educational backgrounds. And then there's the vast growing ethnic background in a church, African, Asian, Latino, Native, Indian, Western, non-Western. And then, you know, to make things more complicated, we all have different personalities, and we think our personalities are the right ones. And then there are 21 different spiritual gifts, and we always ebb that way. And then there's different preferences. And then I go to Port Perry, and I go to Ajax, and I'm going to Bowmanville. See, the diversity only grows and grows and grows, and each one of those things could be a landmine for disunity. And if that's not enough, then there are serious, genuine doctrinal differences between Christians who love Jesus and love the Scriptures. I'm a Calvinist. God chooses me. I'm an Arminian. No, I chose God. Women can be elders. Women can't be elders. I believe in all the spiritual gifts. I'm a charismatic. I'm not a charismatic. I raise my hands. I don't raise my hands. Baptism by sprinkling. Baptism by immersion. I like the Gaithers. I like Bethel. I like Hillsong. I like, I don't know, the purple book, Maranatha, 2001. And then there's the philosophy. Some of you are like, "Mm, I remember that book. And then there's the philosophy of ministry, small church, large church, mega church, multi-site, house church, no church, and on and on and on it goes. Augustine once wrote, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. 
Now, do not misunderstand what I am presenting this morning, because what is now taking place in our postmodern de-Christian culture is people love to use Romans 15 to justify everything, because they say everything's a secondary issue. No, it's not. You cannot just wake up one day and declare what you think is secondary. There have been a sandbox lines that have been written for 2,000 years on doctrine, on Jesus, on the virgin birth, the nature of scripture, on marriage, on sexuality. These things have been worked out for 2,000 years. And let me say this emphatically to you this morning. If you were not here while I preached through Jude, I'm asking all of you to go back and listen to the Jude series so you can understand the difference between false teaching, heresy, and secondary issues. But when it comes to foundational unity, bottom line unity, the call to accept one another is a command of God. It is not optional. If we are to obey Jesus, we have no choice. So finally, we get to Romans 15 where Paul says this. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Now, the weak here are not the weak in faith. They know doctrine. They participate in the gospel. They know spiritual disciplines. It's not a derogatory term, but it's an honest term. And by the way, I need everyone to listen very closely. Certain people are weak in their deepest wounded areas or their own historical struggles. I see this as a pastor all the time. Many of you that come from an out-of-control background... Many of you who come from a real spiritually dark background or an abusive background, you tend to be more black and white on everything because you need boundaries so you don't go back to the chaos you've been saved from. You become a weak Christian, though, when you start saying that everyone else who doesn't have that experience has to have all the same boundaries you have, and you think they are unspiritual for not following you in your own walk. And here's the struggle in church. Most weak Christians think they're the strong ones in the church, and they're not. So weak Christians come along and say, everyone has to obey all these rules, even if they're not in the Bible. Here's an example. You can never go to a bar as a Christian. Why? Well, I used to struggle with drinking, but I don't. Well, it's a sin. Why? Well, the Bible says, see what's happening? This is when weakness and strongness. Now, Paul says, don't, he doesn't say just put up with these people. He says, no, no, the strong, you owe, you have a strong obligation to love the weak brother and sister. And the phrase actually in Greek is, it comes from the idea of carrying a huge pitcher of water. You have to bear with the weakness of those among us. Does that mean the weak should lead the church? Absolutely not. But here's Paul's point. When you're in the presence of a Christian who actually has legalism problems, basically, you should give up your own freedom for the sake of their own walk with Jesus. And let me just do as a side note, since we're an Instagram culture, many of you never think about weak Christians when you post things on Instagram and you need to start doing it. So Paul says, we who are stronger should bear with the weak brother and sister and not make an issue of disunity. Each of us, verse 2, should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself as it is written. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. His point is this. Jesus modeled this. Jesus is God in flesh. He was in indescribable glory. He was in the ever-blessed fellowship of the Trinity. He was perfectly holy. He was never touched by sin. He never walked in the darkness. He was worshipped by billions of angels. And despite all that, Jesus decided to walk among all of us, live for us, die for us, and he still puts up with us today out of love. So like Jesus, Paul writes, you who are stronger in the faith should be willing to serve those who are nasty and immature, even though they think they're strong. Jesus models this love. In other words, when you're around weak Christians, don't abuse your liberty and cause a division. 
He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement, they provide what we have, what we provide, we, <clears throat> we might have hope. Paul says simply this, if you want to understand this, read your Old Testament. If you actually want encouragement and you want to endure in the faith sincerely, keep reading the Old Testament en masse because that is a story of God's endurance for us and our hope. And he says, and it is modeled time and time again. So with all that background, with 14 chapters of such strong teaching and talking about what brings us together, and he confronts disunity right on the head, and he clarifies secondary theology, within the middle of all of that, Paul suddenly stops, and I can see him breathing and going, this is so impossible, this is never going to happen, and so what does Paul do? He stops, he looks up, and he prays, because he knows that this unity is only a miracle. Verse 5, so he says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement, give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had. Now, first of all, I'm so glad it starts, may the God who gives endurance begins the prayer. In other words, he says, this will never come from us. This is a God thing. He calls us to to see the power of Scripture in verse 4, and in verse 5, he prays that God would do this. The idea here is not that we all look the same, or we act the same, or we say eye to eye, but rather that we love each other, and we start looking like Jesus towards each other. This prayer is a revolutionary, dangerous prayer, because it actually commands us and moves us to a place to lay down everything that we love, but actually doesn't bind us together. Prayer is this. The prayer is, would I have the same ability and same attitude and the same worldview and the same love Jesus had for others? Holy Spirit, so change me that I would start responding to other Christians the way Jesus has responded to me. Why does he pray this? Verse 6 says the reason. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to pay attention to this. This is profoundly insightful. Unity is not just about us getting along. Unity is actually connected to our worship and allows us effectively to praise God. Remember, worship only goes one direction, and the goal and the answer of Paul's prayer is that we together in our mass diversity would praise God and do this unity thing together as worship to Jesus. With one voice, with one mind, with one life, we would worship God. In other words, here's the implication. When unity goes up biblically, sin goes down. And when sin goes down, worship gatherings get stronger because when there is less sin, the Spirit of God is less grieved. And when the Spirit of God is less grieved, suddenly worship gatherings explode and the presence of Jesus gets closer. The more unity there is in a church, the more powerful the worship to the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Many churches wonder why they never experienced the dynamic presence of God and they've never made the connection. It is their disunity and their fighting with each other that has prevented the Spirit of God of doing a new, profound, beautiful thing among them. So after Paul prays this first prayer and actually deals with disunity, then he looks at the church and just commands them. He simply says this, so accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, I would like everyone to close their eyes for a second. Don't fall asleep. Close your eyes. Poor Perry, do the same. Some of you just said, I'm not doing that. Would you just close your eyes? It's okay. Just do it, all right? I want you to think about a Christian you don't like. Just do it right now. Someone you just don't get along with. About five of you got me. It's okay. God bless you. Okay, you got that person in your mind? Okay, I'm going to read the verse again. 
right? Accept one another then as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now just sit with it. Accept. Take fellow Christians into your heart and into your home. Why? Because Christ did that to you. You can open your eyes. Jesus has welcomed you. Jesus has accepted you joyously despite our sin. He's, he's actually accepted us with impartiality. Remember, the goal of the Christian church and all of God's work in history is that every tribe and tongue and nation and personality would found, be found before God. I love when one person wrote, think about the amazing diversity of Jews and non-Jews who Christ accepted. Christ's astounding example gives mighty force to Paul's challenge to us. How did Christ accept you and me? He accepted us with our many sins, our prejudices, our innumerable blind spots. He accepted us with our psychological shortcomings, our cultural naivety. He accepted us with our provincialisms, in other words, our cultural biases. He even accepted us with all of our stubbornness. This is how we are called to accept one another. Paul says, look around. God sent Jesus to Jews and non-Jews so we might all be able to praise God. He loves you and he loves that person that was just in your mind a few minutes ago. But Jesus' love, Paul is saying, is the model and the standard. Not you, not me. His eternal, shocking, all-consuming love is the standard for Christian unity. Now, Paul's dealing with Jews and non-Jews fighting. And there's a lot of ethnic hatred and misunderstanding. So Paul, what he does next is brilliant. Paul says this in verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs in the Old Testament might be confirmed. He says, number one, first and foremost, to all of you who are Jews who are listening, let me just break this down for you. Jesus is a servant to all of us who are Jews because Paul was a Jew. He loved us, and why did he do it? Because he is God incarnate. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And everything that was written about from, from Genesis to Malachi is fulfilled in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the King of the Jews and the Messiah, and he loves us. But, it's like in the same breath he says, but stop. Don't think it's just about you. He says to the Jewish audience, have you read your Old Testament? Have you actually heard what God's word, the Torah, and others say? And then Paul does this brilliant thing where he says, okay, let me remind you what the Jewish scriptures say about all the non-Jews you can't stand right now. And he quotes 2 Samuel and the Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah. He systematically quotes every part and style of the Old Testament. And he says, for you who are Jews who have become arrogant, just so you know, for God so loves the whole world, and it was God's plan all along to make sure that the non-Jews found God too. He says, verse 9, more, however, that non-Jews, Gentiles, might glorify God for his mercy, as it's written in the Old Testament. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. Oh, again in the Old Testament, it says, rejoice you non-Jews with his people. Oh, again it says, praise the Lord, all you non-Jews. Let all the peoples extol him. Even Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. To him, the Gentiles will have hope. So Paul says, you have no choice to but to get along because this was God's plan all along, that Jews and non-Jews would find the true living God through Jesus alone. And when he says this, it's like he stops again. He goes, oh, this isn't going to work. So I need to pray again. And so he prays the second prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul starts prayer too with a new name of God. He calls our God the God of hope. 
Now, why does he do this? Because he knows that God is love and God is holy, but what Jesus has done is nothing but hope giving, and it's for Jews and non-Jews. That's why, if you've read the book of Romans, you know what he's referring to, because he's already said this in Romans 8, 37. He said, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, demons, present, future, or any power, nor height or depth, or anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us, Jews and non-Jews, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God, he says, is hope, and hope is actually here, and it binds us together. Let me remind you on this beautiful day in July why our hope is true. Because death will never pull you away from God. Life and all of its allurements, nothing demonic, no cosmic power, nothing good or bad, no political power or spiritual power, nothing in heaven or hell, no disappointment, no neurosis, no psychosis, not insanity itself, nor old age, nor Alzheimer's, no disease, no broken romance, no lost dreams, no financial crisis, no accident, shame, regret, persecution, no lack of food, no lack of freedom, nothing done to you or what you have done to others, no sin that is large or small, public or private, not old age, not disability, nothing in time, nothing in the expanse of space, nothing in the known or unknown universe can ever take any one of you within the sound of my voice away from the love that is given by God the Father, brought to you through Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul says our God is hope, our past is covered, our future is secure, we'll never be alone because he's the God of hope and he gives that hope to a diverse crowd to bring us together. That is why the church is supposed to be different. Paul says he's the God of hope, and he's done this in us and through us and around us. You can clap to that. It's amazing. And so then he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice this. Notice, look, look at the verse. Joy and peace and trust and overflow. Every single one of these things he prays for, do not stem with us. God is the one who's going to have to give you joy. God is the one who's going to have to give you peace. God is the one who's going to make you overflow. And he's going to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that we are commanded to do in this prayer is trust. Believe that God is going to work all things out and he's going to do it by the Holy Spirit. So loving the church, listen please, And loving each other and loving your spouse and loving that neighbor in the church or loving a church down the street that's very different than C4 is absolutely impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. Right when you find yourself looking down at another Christian because of their gift or their personality or their education or when you start standing off, not because they're doing wrong things, but you just don't get along with them or right when you begin, here's critical, to presume the motive of another Christian, though you don't actually know what their motives are, or you start going to another church and you're like, they're so traditional, they sing hymns. Right when that happens, stop and ask the Spirit of God to produce in you a love for that church or a love for that Christian that is impossible. Unity is impossible without the Spirit of God. So Paul prays this twice, and then he keeps going, and he talks about the gospel. I want you to skip down. Because our focus today is just on the prayers of Paul. And Paul later says, now, I'm going to do some stuff. Verse 24, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. And I hope to see you while we're passing through and for you to assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people. So Paul says, look, 
This is what we are called to do, and you and Rome need to do this. And by the way, I'm going to go to Spain, uh, but while I'm going to go to Spain, I want to see you and spend some time. Now, for a third time, Paul stops in this passage and he prays, but it's reversed. He now asks the church to pray for himself. And this is what he prays, or he asks them to pray. Verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, join me in my struggle to pray to, by praying to God for me. So in unity, now you know you have to get along by the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus, because he's the head of the church, because he's the only one who mediates, because he's the only high priest, I would like you as a church to go talk to God the Father on my behalf. I want you to do it by Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see that word urge? It's really strong. It means I beg you, I appeal to you, so much is at stake. I want you to contend for me, stand in the gap for me, agonize, wrestle. He says, I desperately need you to go to God and pray for me. Why? And he says this in verse 31. I pray that I may be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I make in Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people. So he says, I need you to pray for me because I'm going back to Jerusalem, and all my family members and all my ex-colleagues, and uh, listen, they want to murder me. So I'm asking you to pray that I would not die and kept safe. And I'm going back to the church that I used to persecute. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to give this financial gift and I'm praying that I'll have unity with them. So he says, I've taught you and prayed for unity. Now you pray for my protection. You pray that other church I'm going to will have unity too. And he says, and then of course I want to come and be with you. And I want to be refreshed with you. Now by the way, this is a really important point. God answered the prayers of this church for Paul. We just finished going through the book of Acts as a church, and if you read the book of Acts carefully, everything that Paul asked, that he'd go to Rome, that he'd see the Roman church, and that he'd go to Jerusalem and be protected, all happened. But here's, I would say, the most important thing I'm going to say today. It did not happen the way Paul presumed it would at all. I love years ago, Chuck Swindoll said, so God answered the prayers of Paul, but think about how it happened. He was illegally arrested in Jerusalem, misrepresented before the court, incorrectly identified as an Egyptian renegade, entangled the red tape of political machinery, finally got uh, granted a trip across the Mediterranean after two years of basically being in jail, only to, to encounter a storm, then was shipwrecked, and when he finally got to Rome, he was incarcerated and forgotten for two years. If you want to look up the v- word victim in the dictionary, you should see Paul's face. Here's my point. Paul said to the church, I want you to pray for my protection so I don't die. I pray I'd have unity with the church there, and I pray I'd come to get to see you in Rome. And God answered every one of those prayers, but it basically, he was in jail for four years while it happened. In other words, what's critical is God answered the prayers, but how it thought, or he thought it would look, did not work out the same way. Well, right at the end, he prays one last little prayer, and he says, may the God of peace be with you all. Since God is peace, and since God has given us peace with him because we used to be enemies and we're now friends through Jesus, now may the God of peace give you unity between each other. In other words, may God, who has given you peace with heaven, give peace in the church. Now, I just want you to notice the themes of this prayer. Paul says we are called to pray over the unity of Christians. We're called to pray for peace and joy and hope between each other. We're actually to pray for unity and participate in unity so our prayer and our worship to the Father and Jesus actually is better because of unity. We're actually called to pray for the overflowing power of the Holy Spirit. He prays that we would actually trust God more. He says we're allowed to pray for protection from evil situations or people. 
He actually says we should spend time praying that we can spend time together. And he prays that the peace of God, God of peace, would actually be found among us. Now, if you look at all those things and you look at your family or this church or our relationship with other churches, do you think we should be praying any of those prayers? The answer is is absolutely. So let me just bring it home like this. Paul says this, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Here's the hard, beautiful truth of the Scripture. We have no choice but to accept Christians, period. Some of us um, think, I think in our heads, well, well, we'll get along with them in heaven. Have you ever thought that secretly? I think some of us are going to get to heaven. You're, you're going to say, what the heaven are you doing here? I didn't think you were going to be here. Uh. But we're going to be with them forever. You're going to be in eternity with people in this church forever. And since we've been accepted by Jesus, then we need to accept those that Jesus has died for, loved, forgiven, and been part of the family. One person wrote this. We can do this by the power of Jesus. But if we say, I cannot, then I'm actually saying, I will not. But if God is calling us to change something in our lives for the sake of Christianity, we must do it, and we can do it through him. In other words, if you are really struggling with other Christians in another church or background, it doesn't mean everything they do is right, and it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. But if you don't have unity with them, you need to say this prayer, Holy Spirit, give me unity with them that I do not have. I love that Bruxy Cavey from the Meeting House uh, in Toronto, who, by the way, I know well and I disagree with tons of things with him. Him and I are theological cousins at best. We hug like this, right? But he tweeted so brilliantly, Christian unity is a spiritual discipline. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you need to give up? Like, are you actually a weak Christian and you think you're strong? Okay, so what do you need to give up? Or what people do you need to accept? What place are, do, you, do you need to support and do unity well in in a new way? By the way, do you ever actually even pray for the unity of this church? Do you actually pray for the unity of our church with other churches? Are you breaking unity? Are you a person in your mind, in your heart, or in your deeds where you're systematically breaking unity? Repent. Here's the other thing. This command can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul actually says unity. Remember what Jesus said, Christians will be known by their love. How are we doing with that, by the way? Hmm. In other words, we have to pray for an unnatural thing so the unnatural thing happens. So Paul says, if you want to have unity in your marriage, in your family, in your church, among other Christians who are diverse and different, you actually need to stop and say, Holy Spirit, give us unity that is beyond all of our differences. Here's the third thing, and like I made reference to, so important. Not glamorous, just... You have to lay down your expectations of what the answer looks like. When I sit with people en masse all the time, it's one thing I do to diagnose spiritual experiences, systematically evaluate them. Here's what I keep finding. The stumbling block for most of us is not that we're not praying, but we have a wrong expectation in our head of what's going to happen. And when it does not happen, we think God failed or he's late or we're... No, no. Here's what I'm asking. When you pray for unity, when you pray for anything, one thing you must say to God as you're praying is this, and I lay down the expectation of time and what it will look like. Does that make sense to everyone? Because this expectation thing rises and falls and actually can break faith. And so we're called to actually love each other and accept each other because of what Jesus has done. 
We're actually called to do this and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why people from different colors and backgrounds and generations and styles and preferences and different spiritual gifts can actually still love each other because of the power of the Spirit. We're called to lay down expectations, what the answer will look like and when it will happen. And we are commanded to do this because of worship. See, Paul directly links worship to unity. Worship to unity. And if we want continually, as we've been experiencing, the unusual work of God to grow among us, then actually the most practical starting point is how we treat other Christians. Because it's hard to walk into church and sing songs and take communion and listen to preaching and go to connect groups when actually you intentionally sit over there. I'm not pointing anyone specifically. My glasses are off, not, not you. People will say, you're looking at me. No, I'm not. There are lights. Huh. Or maybe I am. No, no. Uh. But you're sitting over there, and you're sitting over there because you don't like someone over there. Can't happen. You, you can't say, well, I'm going to go east so I can avoid someone in Port Perry. Not allowed. And I feel constrained to say this now. And if you're part of our community and you've joined us from another church and you've done it wrong or you've decided not to deal with your stuff before you came here, not allowed. You don't escape from one church to another. Unity, not agreement on everything, but unity matters. And so let's just take a moment. Can we do this all across this place, north, where you are in the cottage, on a plane? And could we just pray a few things and I'll pray the prayer over us. So number one, Jesus says accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God, glory to God. Who do you not accept who is a Christian in your life? Just who are they? Former pastor, church, a denomination, eusteria, I don't like those Pentecostals, I don't like those Baptists. Just take a moment. And if you've got the person there, if you don't, it's fine. But just say, help me, Lord, to accept that person. Not agree, just accept. Number two, Lord Jesus, would you pour out your Holy Spirit and convict anyone of disunity in our church? Thoughts, words, attitudes, actions. And if the Holy Spirit's bringing something to you, would you just repent of it? Now let's pray this over each other. So C4, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give each one of us the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So with one mind and one voice, C4, we will glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of hope, who we all share, fill C4 with all joy and peace as we trust in him. And I just stop and say, Jesus, As I've preached so many times, many of us love you, but we struggle trusting you. Would you teach us trust? So that we, C4, may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we pray, C4, would be kept safe from dangerous situations, from the demonic and evil people. We pray that our service may be favorably favorably received by the Lord's people here and in other churches. And may the God of peace truly bring peace, not only with heaven, but with each other. Here's the last thing I just want to put in front of you, Lord. If there's anything you need to do in our church when it comes to unity, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and do it. Just continue to work this out, we pray. And our last thing is, Lord, keep bringing the diversity too. We pray that every nation, tribe, and tongue would fill by the thousands in this church, old and young and middle and all, just 
keep doing this very profound thing that we're starting to experience more and more. Thank you for the honesty of the scriptures and the hope that God does this among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.